You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. Good evening. Cool. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 46. I've been studying through the Psalms this summer, and it's been really good times. I've been enjoying it. I think you guys have been, too. This is a beautiful book of the Bible. Um, Yeah, Psalm 46. Now, as someone, uh, myself, uh, who is part of the Reformed tradition... I have really, really, really been looking forward to preaching on Psalm 46, uh, as Stephen uh, kind of alluded to earlier, um, some of you, and some of you might already have known this, Protestants, that's us, Protestants often refer to Psalm 46 as Luther's psalm, reference to Martin Luther, the, uh, the 1500s era reformer. And, and we sometimes call it that because, like Steve said, Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is based on Psalm 46. And thank you very much, Anna, for learning that. I love hearing that psalm. Anyone else? Did you guys know that hymn before tonight? Mighty, yeah, Maria did because she grew up Southern Baptist, and they have good hymns most of the time. But anyway, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I've been trying to get that hymn up in here for like the last eight months, and Stephen has been denying me, and he wasn't supposed to be here this week, so I was going to sneak it in via Anna, so, but it worked out anyway. It was good. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there are actually stories uh, that say whenever Martin Luther would receive uh, upsetting messages, right, death threats, he was getting that a lot during the early stages of the Reformation, uh, or just other disturbing news in general, uh, he would often look to his colleague named Philip Melanchthon, which is the best last name, but he would look to his colleague Philip and say, let us sing the 46th, right, referencing the 46th Psalm, because people used to sing psalms very often uh, in church history, um, and then they would, they would go and sing Psalm 46 together, uh, and, and, and Luther would find a good bit of encouragement in that. Uh, but I told you that story. In order to tell you this, and that's this, this psalm, Psalm 46, has been a huge source of comfort for the people of God through the ages, right? Luther is just an example of it and a very famous example at that. Uh, But this is a psalm that people have turned to for millennia whenever they are discouraged or beaten down or afraid of what is to come in the future. Believers tend to turn to this psalm, this particular psalm, Psalm 46, because it is a resounding message to us that God is our God. God is our God. And not only that, but he promises to see us through all sorts of trials in our lives. This psalm is a reminder that God is our defender and protector, that he is our refuge and our place to hide in, that he promises to never abandon us to our enemies. And he he promises to never abandon us to our problems, whatever those might be in this life. But this psalm is just a big promise to us that God will never forsake us. That he's always going to come to our aid and grant us the strength to persevere through faith to the end. And Martin Luther really hit the nail on the head. There's my pun for the evening. Luther hit the nail on the head when he summed up the teaching of this psalm in the title of his hymn. Truly, a mighty fortress is our God. So here's our big idea for the sermon this evening. It's this. Come whatever may, God's people are happy and secure in Him. Come whatever may, whatever happens, God's people are happy and secure in Him. 
So without any more for introduction, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word given to us. It's been faithfully passed down from age to age through your church. Thank you for giving us a written record of what you say about yourself and what you promise to be for us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word this evening that the believers who are assembled here would be edified and encouraged with the thought that you are our fortress and that you are with us, that we shall not be moved, that though the world assaults us, though pain and trials come, we are happy and secure in you. Lord, if there are any unbelievers in our midst this evening, I pray that they would come to see that you are not their fortress, but that you offer refuge for them if they will repent and believe upon Christ. Lord, bless us this evening. Make our hearts malleable and ready to receive the word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this psalm starts really abruptly, and it starts with a bold and great declaration about God. Right, Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And just real quick, I want to note, only God is called these things. We're going to get into this at the very end of the sermon just for a minute. Only God is called these things, our refuge, our strength, and a very present help for the Christian. Not your money, not the government. Lord help us if we think the United States government is going to do anything productive or good for you. Right? And not your friends. Right, None of those things. Only God is called refuge. Only God is called strength. Only God is called a very present help for his people. Only him, he alone. But the psalmist tells us three things about God. All right, in the context of this whole psalm, we can't forget this. No matter which stanza we're in, the context is the same. And the context is times of trial, trouble, and distress. All right, so God is refuge, strength, and help 
in times of trial and distress. But the first thing we see, God is our refuge, meaning a place for us to hide in. I believe the word that we use, fortress, in the other verses are actually, it's actually the same word from what I understand. But God is our refuge, a place for us to hide in, a place for us to run to and find shelter during times of crisis. He is a fortress for us to go to and to find rest for our hearts and be at peace while things are chaotic outside. I don't know if you know too much. I'm not a huge, uh, I'm not really into architecture that much, but a fortress is a wartime thing, right? Whenever chaos and war is breaking out, you go run to a fortress city where the walls are huge and, and, and you, it, basically it's, it's an impregnable place for the people to hide in, right? A fortress. God is a place where we can be at peace while war is going on around us, while things are chaotic and we know we're safe in him. Right, so again, as I just said, God being our refuge means that we are safe when we hide in him. And I want to hit this first and foremost, and I'll never not hit this. As Christians, we know that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our refuge. Do we not? Right, just like the ark was for Noah and his family, and they were saved from the flood, Jesus Christ is the refuge for the people of God. That we might come to him by faith and hide in him. And he become our refuge from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, for our rebellion against God. We know that we hide in Christ by faith in his perfect life and atoning death on the cross in our place. And we're kept safe from the punishment for our sins. We're kept safe from hell. We're kept safe from God's anger. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the only refuge for sinners before a holy, just, and righteous God. And we know that, right? As I look out, I believe I know all of you. We all profess faith. We all claim that we've come to Christ by faith. And we know that he is our refuge from the flood of God's wrath. But more than that, more than that, and grace upon grace, right, we continue to find refuge in our God throughout the trials of life. Right? He has promised to protect us. He's promised to keep us, to comfort and encourage us. Right, like refugees fleeing a country of death and despair in search of a safe place, we too run to God to find peace and life in Him. I was thinking of some examples that I've personally experienced for God being refuge. Like whenever it seems like no one loves us. You ever felt that way? That no one really loves you? We run to Him who loves us. And we hide in him who sent his son and proved his love for us. And that he sent his son to die for us. When it feels like nobody is for us. And that everyone is against us. And everyone is criticizing us. And it seems like everyone has militated against us. And we don't know why. We run to him who is always for us. So long as we are for him. And he is a refuge Praise God, who will never turn us away. A refuge that will never turn us away. He genuinely loves His people. Christian, hear me. Whatever it is you're going through, and again, it's a constant theme whenever I preach through stuff like this. There's, for us to be such a small church, lots of suffering, lots of turmoil, lots of pain. Know this, God actually loves you. I know that I preach a lot about the wrath of God. I know I've been doing that a lot for the past few weeks in some of these psalms. God loves His people. God beckons you. Come find refuge in me. 
sent my son to die for you. And that should be a comforting thought for us, that he is for us. He loves us when no one else does, and he beckons us, come, hide in me. I will keep you safe. I will be your shelter through the storm of life. That's comforting for us. But not only is he refuge, the first verse says God is our strength, meaning the source of our strength. Right, the source. He is the fountainhead from which all power flows. Right, and it flows to his people. He's our strength. So God is the reason why the Christian perseveres through this life. God is the reason why no matter what, all the powers of hell might assail the Christian, right, might come against us, we might be attacked and beaten, but God is the reason why the Christian continues to persevere, why the Christian continues to live the life of faith. It's a little thing. Have you, have you ever wanted to just give up? Like, have you ever had, like, it seems like the world falls down around you, and you just want to give up being a Christian, you're like, it would just be simpler if I just kind of went with the flow and didn't have to stand for anything. Or if I could just let people kind of do what they want and me never say anything to them and never have any backlash. I just want to quit. You ever been there? It was simpler when I didn't know God. And you want to quit. But you can't. <laughs> like, you just can't. Like, once you know things, you can't unknow them. Right? Once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you can't just untaste that. You can't just unknow it. Why couldn't you quit? Why? Because God is our strength. That's why you don't quit. That's why you'll wake up tomorrow a Christian if you are one. God is the reason why we remain believers no matter what we might be going through. He's the reason. Right? Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Jesus tells us that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But since God is the fountainhead of all strength, we stay strong and persevere in the midst of adversity. Right? It's not by our power that we remain faithful. It is by God's grace and strength toward us that he's promised to be for us. And the third thing this first verse says is that God is present with us. Right? In times of trouble, God is a very present help. He's very present. He's with us. So think about this. Right? And at Rev, we try really hard to have a very high view of God, right? as opposed to man-centered theology that is just a cancer in the evangelical world. Right? We try to have a big view of a mighty, sovereign God. Right? So let's, let's, let's hash this through. The supreme, sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing, transcendent, majestic, unrivaled, vast, great God is with you. First of all, think of the humility of God that he would send his spirit to dwell in us and, and walk with us. But this great big, I don't ever want us to lose the eminence and the nearness of God because we have such a high view of him. Never lose the high view. But doesn't the high view of God make it so sweet to us that God is actually with us? He's with you, Christian. He is at your side to help you, his child, in times of need. The Christian never endures one single hardship by themselves. Never once have we walked alone. God is always there to sustain us, to keep us, and to fight for us. Right? This is what I'm going to call the Emmanuel principle. Right? Emmanuel meaning God with us. And it's found all over this psalm that God is with His people. He's with you. The sovereign Lord is with you. 
But there's also a, text, a textual variant in verse 1, which means there's alternative readings whenever we look at ancient manuscripts. And that very present help in trouble can also be read a well-proved help. Right? So I just wanted to hit both of them because I don't know which one it is. Right? A well-proved help, which is a reminder to us. God's a well-proved help. A reminder to us that time and again, God has been faithful to his people. Well-proved help. Faithful to us. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, there is not one page in the proverbial diary of our lives that we cannot point back to and see that God was there and that he saw us through. Think of the things that you've endured, whether they be great or small, whatever it is, think about it for a minute. Can you ever say, God abandoned me? Even if you were in a place where you were suicidal, you are still here, are you not? Whenever you felt like no one was there and that nothing cared, did, not, did God not sustain you? Think personally in your life. When you were at the lowest, when everything was against you, was God not faithful? You're here today because God saw you through. He's a well-proved help. He was there with you. He was present and growing you. He was keeping you and bringing glory to himself through your perseverance. A well-proved help is our God. And whenever we look over our lives with the eye of faith, we see that plain as day. And because God is our refuge and strength and help, we go on to verse 2 and 3. Therefore, since he is these things, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So since God is with us to help strengthen and sustain us, we will not fear. Now this does not mean that that we won't be concerned about what's going on around us. But it means that we will not be consumed. You might be concerned, but you will not be consumed with anxiety. You will not be consumed with fear. You will not be consumed with worry because God is with you, because God is your refuge and your strength. Now these verses, in in, in verses 2 and 3, they paint a picture, right, of the whole earth being destroyed around us, right? The mountains being cast into the sea and the seas roaring and just going everywhere, right? It's earthquakes happening, awful things, the whole world being destroyed, the world being flipped upside down essentially, Awful things happening around us and even happening to us. And the reason why I say bad things happening to us is because earthquakes affect everyone, right? If a mountain gets thrown into the sea, I live close to some of those, right? This is going to affect me. And horrible things indeed do happen to us and around us, right? Just open your eyes. It's not hard to see. Nations are overthrown and go to war. Terrible things. It's not happened here very long time, but nations are overthrown and go to war. Families fight and become estranged. People don't want to talk to one another. Friends hurt one another, and their relationships are all but severed. The people of God are persecuted for the sake of Christ. False teaching runs rampant throughout the world. There are natural disasters. There is much sickness, much pain, and much death. But this text says, Come whatever may, 
Even if the world is destroyed, the child of God will not fear. Why? Because God is faithful. Because God is their refuge. Because God is their God. I want to make a note here and stop for a second. Something to consider. By saying that God, right off the rip, this psalm says that God is our refuge, strength, and help. This psalm, God in his holy wisdom, is telling us from the get-go of this psalm that we are weak and that we need help and that we need a place to hide. That's what he's telling us and declaring, I am these things for my people. He's saying, yeah, you need all of these things. So let me encourage you then. No matter where you're at in life right now, if things are good, if things are bad, wherever you're at, humble yourself before God. Admit these things about yourself. Because you are weak. You are needy. You do need a refuge. If you can't see it now, it will become apparent to you at some point in the future. That you are all of those things. So humble yourself before God now and look to Him in faith to be those things for you. Moving on to verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now something you need to know to understand verse 4 and the verses that are going to come after it in this stanza is that that phrase, the city of God, whenever used poetically or in a symbolic fashion, as it is in a psalm, because psalms are poetry, whenever it's used in a poetic fashion, it refers to the people of God. Right? So there is a stream a river whose streams make glad the people of God. Right? A symbolic stream that flows through the people of God and makes them glad, that encourages them, gives joy to the people of God. And keep in mind the context of this psalm, right? Distress, trial, hardship. This gladness, this joy for God's people is a gladness in the face of whatever hardship is coming against them. It's like a spiteful gladness. Right? It's like a spiteful joy that you have in God no matter what's going on around us. Right? Now there's some debate on what this stream and river specifically is. Right? But I think that we can all agree that the thing that flows from God to his people and makes them glad in the face of pain is the grace of God. If nothing else, I think we can all get behind that. The grace of God flows through the people of God and makes us glad in hard times. You know, in times of war, I thought this was interesting. In times of war, uh, ancient warfare, uh, ancient cities and fortresses, right, like war cities and whatnot, uh, they needed a constant supply of water, right? They needed a constant supply of water in order to withstand a siege, Right? People are blocking off entrances and exits to the city. You need a constant supply of water to withstand a siege, or the city is going to quickly fall and be conquered. Some of you see where I'm going with this. This is beautiful, isn't it? Here, we are told that we have constant streams from the river of God's grace to sustain us through the war. That's what we're told, constant streams of the grace of God. And I would argue that these are gospel graces that no one can take from us. Right, that God has chosen this city and that God dwells in her and that God will protect her. Right, at all times, Christian, we draw on the river of truth that we have been chosen by God. That's a huge one. That we have been chosen by God. That we've been atoned for in Christ. 
that we've been born again of the Holy Spirit, that we are currently indwelt by the Spirit, that we've been given gifts to exercise amongst the people of God by His Spirit, that we have been adopted by the grace of God through Jesus Christ into the family of God and God is our Father, that we are being sanctified in the midst of everything that we go through and that we have assurance that we will see Jesus Christ face to face. This river of God's grace is immeasurably wide and immeasurably deep. It never runs out. We drink daily from this gospel stream. And we're made glad by it through all occasions. Why? Why are we always made glad whenever we reflect on these truths in the middle of hardship? Because nothing can change them. Nothing can change them. God has declared these things by sovereign ordination. They are true. These are eternal truths regardless of what is happening around us. Drink from this gospel river and be glad. We'll also go on in verse 5. We see that God dwells in this city. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That might be my favorite verse in here. So again, here's this concept of Emmanuel, right? God with us. And God is indeed with us as Christians. And because of that, what does verse 5 say? We shall not be moved. We shall not be moved. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a promise that we will not be assaulted. Not being moved is not a promise that we will not be assaulted by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. Right? It's not a promise of no hardship. But it is a promise that we will not be moved one single inch from the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ. Regardless of what happens, we shall not be moved. We can never be moved from the grace of God. We may stumble and fall but we will never perish. We will never fall away from grace. We cannot be moved from His grace because God has bound us to Himself. He has covenanted with us through the blood of His Son and He will sustain us. We are His through this life and in the life to come. We are His. But I really love that this psalm isn't pie-in-the-sky junk, right? Right? And you might think that it is if you read this on a surface level and don't really think about this psalm. Oh, that sounds great. God's our fortress. Nothing bad's going to happen and we're going to be fine. Right? It sounds like too good to be true. This text actually implies that things, is get, that things will get dark for us sometimes. I don't know if you caught it or not. God will help her when morning dawns. What is that implying? That there will be darkness. There will be darkness. We will go through dark times before the dawn. That's how it goes. We will have family strife. We will have job losses. We will be hated. We will get sick. This life will have plenty of suffering. That's a fact. I just listened to a sermon. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, anyone who endeavors to live a godly life will suffer. Take that, prosperity gospel. There will be plenty of suffering and sorrow. But... When the dawn comes, when the dawn comes, meaning at the appointed time, 
at the appointed time ordained by God, when the dawn comes, God will help us. God will help us. In His time, God will bring peace. And He will conquer our enemies. He will give relief. And until then, we are not moved from His love for us. Even though we suffer. But then the psalmist continues on this idea of God's people being threatened but safe in verse 6. The nations rage. It reminds you of Psalm 2 a little bit, doesn't it? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Right, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The nations and kingdoms rage and threaten to fall on the city of God. That's what's in mind here. The nations are raging and tottering toward and against the city of God, against the people of God. I was reading a commentary by John Calvin, and he was saying that this is a poetic description of all kinds of enemies and hardships coming against God's people. Right? And I'm not, I know we've already talked about some of those specifically, so I'm not going to hash through them all again. But again, just general trials or specific enemies, right? like a government opposed to the people of God or a group of people that hate and persecute uh, with violence the people of God. All kinds of enemies and hardships coming against God's people. They rage and they totter. But then, with a mere word, he utters his voice. He doesn't even speak loudly. He utters his voice, and God melts the ground under the nations and kingdoms. That's what's implied there. The nations rest on the earth. God melts the earth under them, so they fall. Those who would oppress and oppose the people of God, the trials of life that would beat us with a word from the Almighty, melted. So though the whole world may be against us, they can be brought to nothing the moment that God sees fit to give us relief. The psalmist is reminding us that God has promised to be protector and defender of his people. And in light of this, the psalm gives a bold declaration of the Christian's confidence in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And there's that principle, that Emmanuel principle. God is with us. God is with us. Why on earth should we fear anything in this life since we know that God is our God? And since we know Him personally, the covenant name of God is used there, Yahweh of hosts. We know Him. He's revealed Himself to us. This God is our God. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Not saying that people can't be against us, but who can successfully be against the people of God if God is for them? We have nothing to fear. It says the Lord of hosts is with us. Meaning the God of armies. A powerful God. A commander. A general of the heavenly armies. And if that doesn't sound very impressive to you, I'll remind you of a story in Isaiah. I believe it was the uh, pagan king Sennacherib was coming against Israel. And God sent one angel in the night. And one angel killed 185,000 men in a single night. The God of hosts of these is our God. The Lord of hosts is with us. Our God is an unstoppable force. And he fights for us. He protects us and keeps us by immeasurable power. Why should we fear? Why should we fear? 
And we're told the God of Jacob is our fortress. A reminder of the fact that our God is a covenant God. Right? The God of Jacob. They're referencing back to the patriarchs. Right? Abraham, Jacob, those guys. This is the God of Jacob. A, a God who is a covenant God. A God who has chosen a people for himself and has adopted them into his family and continues to always be faithful to those whom he has covenanted himself to. God has pledged himself to us that we are his people and that he is our God through the blood of his son. And God will keep covenant with us. If you've never studied some the doctrines of the, on the, around the covenants, I strongly recommend it. God keeps covenant with his people. And our covenant has been sealed and ratified through the blood of Jesus Christ. It will not be broken. We will not be forsaken. Our covenant God is with us. So whenever we combine the sheer power of God, the Lord of hosts, with the fact that God has covenanted himself to a people, and these people are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, his son, whenever we combine those two thoughts, we have unbreakable, unshakable ground for our confidence that God will keep and sustain us. The Lord of hosts will protect us. The God of Jacob will be faithful. But the psalm now shifts from the present confidence that we have in God, right? The, the, the view shifts from present confidence to future hope for what God promises to do. Verses 8 and 9, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So the psalmist is inviting us to look into the future and behold what God has done for his people. Come, look. It's future tense as if it's already happened. Which, by the way, I want to lay this before you. If God promises to do something, it's as good as has already happened. It's as good as has already happened. This is why Old Testament believers could be justified through Christ, though Christ had not come yet. Whatever God says is going to happen, it's as good as happened. So the psalmist says, come, look what he did, even though it's future. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Come and see how God has destroyed everything on earth that once hurt his people. Come see how he's put an end to it. How God has made an end of sin and put death to death. How he has ended all pain and sickness. Come and see how sorrow is no more. Come and see how God has made all fighting cease. How he has destroyed the nations and governments who oppressed his people. How he has ruined everything that caused suffering to his beloved ones. Come and see. Come and behold. This is a beautiful reminder to us that one day when the Lord Jesus returns for his church... There will be eternal peace for us. Wars will cease. Peace and godliness will reign. And what's more than that is that even the weapons of war will be burned up. Verse 9, breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. What's he saying? The burning up of weapons symbolizes that there is no chance for another rebellion to break out because they have been de-armed. There's no chance that God's people will ever suffer again once God establishes peace. The weapons are destroyed. The war is over. It's over. And God is victorious for His people. I want to take a minute and encourage you. We hope in this future day. 
in the midst of our hardships, we hope for that day. Don't get me wrong, we have hope and confidence in God's protections and persevering grace and being our refuge right now. We have that, but we always live with this future hope in our heart. And hear me on this, I'm encouraging you to live with that in your heart, to keep your eyes focused on that future day, because if you lose sight of this hope, you're going to fall into despair when the heat is on in your life. You will. But don't forget that truth, the coming day of peace and rest for the people of God. And because God promises to be our fortress now and bring total peace in the future, God says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. To be still implies that you need to stop doing one thing and start doing something else. And usually when we're enduring hardships and facing trials, we are prone to worry and to get anxious and be afraid. But verse 2 says we will not fear. This last verse tells me that instead we will be still. Instead of being afraid, we will be still. It's as if God's telling us, don't be afraid. Know that I am the sovereign Lord, that I have covenanted with you through my Son. Know that you belong to me, that you shall not be moved, that I am always with you, that I am all-powerful, that I will sustain you, that I am your refuge, strength, and help. And I've said it multiple times, but God has pledged himself to us. We need not fear. We need only trust him to do and be what he has declared himself to be. You know, true knowledge of God. He says, be still and know. True knowledge of God. There's a reason why we are so into theology. There's a reason why doctrine matters. It's because true knowledge of God and remembering who He is and what He has promised will calm our fears. There's practical application for this. will calm our fears in the midst of life. And it's usually whenever we forget or refuse to believe that God is who He says He is that we fall into fear. We need only trust Him to be faithful to us. And as we said earlier, who can ever dare say that God has been unfaithful? He is faithful. If we'll be still and know that He is God, we can rest even in the darkest night of our soul. With tears streaming down our face, we can find a measure of peace in Him. But then the psalm ends by repeating itself. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And the psalm closes with a final reminder of our powerful and faithful covenant God. And we've seen the many blessings of having God as our refuge. So let me ask, and I want to ask this, not that I'm questioning anybody, but even when, even when preaching to a group of Christians, I always want to lay this down. Is God your fortress? Is He your fortress? Is He really your God? Is He really your God? Can you hide in Him and be comforted? And what I'm really asking when I say that, again, I know all of you guys in here, not trying to throw doubt on your profession of faith, but I must ask, have you turned from your sin and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented and believed the gospel? Christ's perfect life and atoning death and resurrection in your place. Because this is the only way to have God as your fortress. 
This is the only way. Apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, none of the things that have been said this evening are for you. In fact, the opposite is true. God will wage war against you and refuse to comfort you and refuse to be your refuge. Apart from Christ. So turn to Christ and live and have God as your place to hide in. Repent and believe in Him and be saved. And if you say, I'm converted, then continue repenting and continue believing. That is the Christian life. Continue. Persevere. Keep hiding in Him. Keep looking to Christ. But I want to end with one last thing. Beware of false fortresses. They look really good. And they're really awful. Beware of false fortresses. Do you look for a politician to save you? Do you look for a politician to save you? Do you think that if we just get the right people in office or get the right Supreme Court justice that everything is going to be fine and that you'll have peace? Will that be the savior of the world? The Republican Party did not die for your sins and the Democrats did not predestine you unto salvation in eternity past. They're not going to help you. Hear me on that. Do you look for a political group? Do you look for any kind of group to save you? To bring peace for you, Christian? Do you look to the power of government and men to save you and fight for you? God help us to not be like Israel who look to political alliances to save them. Another, do you look to your money to comfort you and make you safe? Do you think if you just save some more, if you just get this better paying job, that you'll be fine and secure? That's an attractive one. Right? Money is power, right? It's a stupid saying, but it's a popular one. Or do you look to your friends or your family members or even your spouse to be your refuge? To be the place where you go and run to, to find comfort for your soul? Do you run to another, a mere human being and seek protection from the world and seek solace and comfort when you're hurting? Do you look to another person to be your strength in the face of adversity? Beware of false fortresses. They are appealing. They seem strong. But they are nothing. In the heat of day, they will fail you. They will crumble at some point. They are awful gods and terrible fortresses. They will break and leave you defenseless in the heat of battle. They cannot do for you what only the sovereign God can. So look to Him alone. Find refuge in Him. Find your strength in Him. Be glad in Him. Trust in God alone.
because he alone is the mighty fortress that will never fail us. I'll leave you with verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. For all of these things that we've looked at this evening that you promise to be an eternal hiding place for your people. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we hide in you to escape the wrath of God. God, we thank you that you're a faithful covenant God to us who promises to sustain and keep us. Lord, help us to keep from false idols, or rather false gods. Keep us from idolatry. Keep us from looking to politicians as our Messiah. Keep us from looking to money. Keep us from looking to mere mortals. Focus our hearts on you. Fix our eyes upon you. Lord, we have wandering hearts. Bind them to yourself, please. God, we thank you that you've promised to do these things for us, that in the new covenant, it cannot be broken. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. And above all, we thank you for Christ and him crucified on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins that we might know you as father and fortress. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.